What is the one thing that virtually all of the most prolific home run hitters in Major League Baseball have in common? Power. That is true, but the answer is they all strike out a lot, including <laughs> the late, great Mickey Mantle. This month on Ebb and Flow, we talk about preparing for and behaving during challenging market conditions. We use some bad words like volatility, correction, and bear market, not to scare our listeners, but to address head-on these realities of investing, and make the point that for responsible investors, there are ways to prepare portfolios and mindsets so as to weather the storms. For this topic, we welcome a seasoned investor and close colleague, namely Ashley Martella, Long River Wealth Management partner and head of our investment committee. Many of you know Ashley, but you may not know the extent of his impressive resume, which includes an MBA from the University of Connecticut, CFA and CFP designations, and over 17 years as a financial advisor at UBS. In this role, he has been recognized for the past three years on the Forbes Shook Best in State Wealth Advisors list, and in his free time, Ashley serves on the board of the Children's Educational Opportunity Foundation, among several other volunteer commitments. On top of all this, he manages to find time for his wife and two young children. So stay tuned for an interesting talk with an interesting guest. On behalf of Long River Wealth Management, welcome to this month's edition of Ebb and Flow. Ashley Martella, my partner, it is good to be with you. Thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure, Paul. And given some of your high-profile past speakers, you know, appreciate the invitation, and and hopefully uh, the audience enjoys my commentary. I'm sure Thanks they will. for the invite. <laughs> You're welcome, and I'm I'm sure you will live up to the high expectations of the Ebb and Flow podcast. So, Ashley, we have a, a lot to talk about, and as I mentioned in the intro, twenty. 22 has started out with some drama, I think you could say, in the form of volatility and you know a significant sell-off in equity markets. We're going to talk today about some strategies and the right mindset for navigating periods like these. But first, what's going on in these markets? Good question. I'll say it's a combination of things, Paul. First and foremost, we've had an excellent run here since uh, obviously the downturn in 2020 had a really quick rebound in 2020 after that and in last year we had a tremendous market virtually anywhere you look in the equity space except maybe for the emerging markets in the latter part of last year so we are entering 2022 with some higher valuations probably a little bit of complacency on the part of the individual investor and many fund managers. So I would say part of this is a little bit overdue. And then I think you combine that backdrop with some of the recent Fed commentary. And we're all aware of you know some of the tight labor markets that we have. We're aware of supply chain issues due to COVID. And the Fed recently came out and indicated that they're going to start removing a lot of the accommodative measures they put in place right after the pandemic. So that includes by March of this year, stopping the quantitative easing program, meaning they're going to stop buying new bonds that we issue raising rates probably three times, if not four times this year, and even letting a lot of bonds roll off their balance sheet. So so what's effectively happening is, you know, the party still is going, but the Fed has asked us to turn down the, the music. That is the reality. And then, of course, we threw the third item on the, on the table, which is what's going on geopolitically with Russia and Ukraine. And, you know, even if it doesn't result in a hot war, the chances are that it it still may create a little bit of of turmoil in terms of, you know, our response and their response to our response. And so, 
you know, this pocket of uncertainty along with the extended valuation, I think, you know, creates a situation where a pullback of some sorts was, was going to happen at some point. So, Ashley, you and I spend our days along with our whole team, you know, considering the portfolios and the assets that we manage in the context of all market conditions. And you recently, you know, made some pointed suggestions to our investment committee on repositioning our portfolios in light of the conditions you just described. So can you talk us through these moves? What's your reasoning? Sure. And, and some of these moves are just a continuation of, of some of the changes that we've already made. But by and large, what we always try to do is look to where we are in the business cycle and what could perform well and what can struggle. And right now, we still believe that we're in a growth phase of this economy. And we think that as, once COVID passes, at least this latest variant, we're going to see a continued reopening of the economy. And that's going to result in a few things. So one is going to be higher rates, because obviously we're dealing with inflation concerns now, and the Fed is in the process of removing these measures. And two, we think that if we're in an environment of higher interest rates and higher inflation, there are certain areas of the market that tend to perform a little bit better than others. And so part of these changes are to continue our transition to move away from growth in, in some of the areas that have performed extremely well the last five to 10 years and into these areas that from a valuation standpoint are attractive, but also maybe better situated for the fundamental landscape that we see going forward. So nothing drastic, but, you know, in terms of our views, you know, we do have a more favorable view of areas like energy, financials, to an extent industrials, and we're trying to limit our exposure to some of the higher technology, higher innovation areas that and we've seen this year to date, have really struggled as rates have risen. So, Ashley, I know that some of the names in those tech areas and those innovation areas are pretty popular. You know, they're household names. They're kind of darlings of the last 10 years. And, and I, I think some might say, well, are you abandoning tech and growth altogether? I'm assuming that by doing this, we're, we're ratcheting down the exposure, not eliminating it, correct? Absolutely right. Absolutely right. I think a lot of these names are what we would call secular growth names, meaning they're good long-term holdings in a portfolio. But we have to understand where we are today. A lot of these names, if we just let them run, have become a much larger percentage of the portfolio than where we were three, four, five years ago. So part of this exercise is rebalancing, going from you know what we want our target to be versus what it's become. And we do trim around the edges. I think it's important over time to find opportunities when they present themselves. And when our other markets get cheap and the fundamentals start to move in their favor, we want to have positioning in those areas as well. So I'm by no means suggesting that we exit growth in its entirety, especially since most of our portfolios, we have very little in the areas that I would say are suspect in terms of valuation. I think, you know, maybe some of the holdings we have have become a little bit elevated in valuation, but, you know, a lot of the companies that we own are high quality, have strong cash flows. Many of them actually pay dividends, which is, was unusual if you looked at technology names yeah. dating back to the late 90s, and early 2000s. Obviously, a lot of them are just much more stable now than they were. So to your point, we continue to maintain positioning in these areas. We're just trying to manage it. Understood. Okay. So Ashley, I'm going to ask you to take a step back now and talk more broadly about the history of market volatility, all the way from intraday drama that we've seen in certain days in the past to, you know, a full-blown bear markets that we've seen. Can you talk about these periods in history? How often do they come? What do they have in common? 
What else have we learned about volatility in general? Happy to. So first off, I, I would say volatility, it's just a normal part of markets. And we go through these periods of low volatility to periods of higher volatility, and that is the norm. If we look at the history of pullbacks, and this is going back, you know, 70, 80 years, on average, we have about two to three 5% pullbacks in any given year. Last year was unusual on that we had such low volatility. I think we saw maybe one pullback of a total of 5%, but, but that's unusual in the grand scheme of things. Pullbacks of 10% happen about every two years. Pullbacks of 15% happen every three years on average, and pullbacks of 20% or more happen about every six years. I joined the team back in 2005. We obviously had the big sell-off in 2008 during the credit crisis, but we also had a sell-off over 10% in 2010. We had one in 2011. We had one in 2015 into 2016. We had a sell-off of almost 20% at the end of 2018. And obviously in 2020, we had a 35% sell-off from Pete to Trough in March. And so these are to be expected. They happen. We now had a 10% sell-off this year. We're rallying today, but you know this is, is kind of going along with what we've experienced historically. What I will say about sell-offs and what they have in common, most happen fairly quickly, as do the market rebounds from the more shallow corrections. So you know we've seen a number of these 10% type of corrections where the rebounds are fairly quick afterwards. The exception is the longer bear markets, and you know I would classify the 2000 to 2002 tech bubble burst as, as one of the longer ones. Mm-hmm. That took some time to repair, given you know we dropped over 40%, and you know I think you know the public was spooked with you know how quickly the tech world drops, and you know technology as an asset class, the tech index was down something like almost 90% from peak to trough. So it's understandable that the recovery would have taken a little bit longer there. But they also could start at any point, and you know sometimes the the volatility doesn't match the news, right. uh, which means there could be more technical trading factors at work versus you know some of the fundamental economic or company specific changes that would cause a downturn. I and mean, we saw this the other day, a few days ago, the Dow was down a thousand points, and then it ended the day positive, <laughs> and the news was there was no change. There really wasn't any news of consequence that should have caused that type of volatility. So I think, you know, as an investor, we just have to accept that this sometimes happens and always a rationale for the moves that we see. Actually, expand on that for a second. When you say technical factors, are we talking about logarithmic trading? Are we talking about hedge funds? What are some of the technical factors that are at play in moments like this? I think it could be all of the above. It could be some of these systematic traders, when you get to a certain point, they sell or buy. It could be hedge funds that are de-risking. It could be, you know, when you have the really big downturn, sometimes you have margin calls, Mm -hmm. meaning you create a forced selling environment where you have this big downturn and then the markets rally back. And there's no real necessarily news that causes that. But, you know, sometimes these happen and the markets get ahead of themselves on the upside or also on the downside. Interesting. So, Ashley, as we wrote in our Long River Wealth Management quarterly letter and also spoke about on the most recent client call that we held, there are steps investors can take to brace for challenging periods, and there's guidance they can follow during these periods. So can you talk about the mistakes people can make ahead of and within sell-offs and bear markets and maybe some thoughts on how to avoid those mistakes? Sure. And what I would say, generally speaking, 
speaking, is one in doubt, stay the course. The short-term volatility can create a bit of angst. And, you know, most of the time you're better off as an investor just sticking with your long-term strategy and, you know, staying disciplined. Where possible, I would say revisit your longer-term goals and your financial plan because that could help you stay focused on what's most important. And more often than not, the short-term fluctuation in the market has very little impact on whether you could accomplish your long-term objectives. The second thing you can do is, is always try to maintain enough liquidity so that you can control what you sell and when you sell it. Mm. In periods where we have volatility, which we know are part of a normal market cycle, the last thing you want to be forced to do is sell when the market is unfavorable to do so. So that entails, I think, also considering raising liquidity as the market is really strong. If you have upcoming expenditures, whether it's six months out or 12 months out, if you have a required minimum distribution or maybe you have a plan to put a down payment on a house um, or you're considering that, use that as an opportunity to create that additional liquidity. So it's there so you can leave the rest of your portfolio intact. The other thing I would say is is just accept volatility as something we can manage but not avoid. Mm. No one can perfectly time an, an exit or uh, enter the market appropriately. Um, and even if you're successful, you have to keep in mind you have to contend with taxes by selling. And, and a lot of the holdings that our long-term clients have have some big unrealized gains, so it may not be in their interest to take all those gains at once. Mm. And finally, and this is really where we have a direct impact, we want to maintain diversification and avoid areas of speculation. And so that will mean, you know, having a broadly diversified portfolio that's not too exposed to any one company or sector. You want to have good quality U.S. holdings if you're going to be an equity investor, but you also want to have some exposure to international markets, possibly fixed income where appropriate. And in many of our diversified portfolios, we utilize diversifiers such as gold and natural resources exposure, which can hold up a little bit better in, in periods of geopolitical uncertainty and or inflation. So, Ashley, you're describing what I would call a, a, you know, a sober and a measured investment approach that has worked over time. And yet I do want to kind of bring in the perspective of, of clients. And, you know, you and I were just on a call with a prospective client last night and we were asking him about his risk profile right out of the gate because, you know, this is important to any discussion we have and any decision we make ultimately. And when we have these kinds of conversations with clients about their risk appetite, we hear such a range of answers to the question, you know, from those who don't want to lose a penny of, of the wealth they've acquired, those who want to maybe just keep up with inflation, those willing to take a little bit more risk over time to achieve growth. And then, of course, there are those who, you know, essentially just speculating. They, they, they just want the next big thing and they want to chase that. So can you talk a little bit about how investors perceive risk in general and what factors should go into determining one's risk profile? It's a great question. And I think you know, from a risk perspective, you know, we have to define risk because there's various types of risk. The risk that most people think of is the risk that they put a dollar into an investment and it's no longer a dollar, right? It can go down. And so that is a risk that's volatility risk. It may not stay down if it goes down, but that is market risk. And, and any equity oriented investor has to take that risk. The other risk, which I think the average individual doesn't think that much about, but in my opinion is probably more important, is inflation risk. The reality is, and the one thing that's been consistent pretty much over time, is that the dollars that we have in our pocket become less and less valuable. 
So everyday items that we buy cost more and more. And we've seen that more pronounced over the last, you know, 12 to 18 months. But mm-hmm. but that's the reality. It's always been the case. And so you want to have an investment portfolio that over time could outpace inflation. So these are risks that we look at. From our perspective, though, I think that the one risk that is most important to our clients is their ability or inability to push their investment objectives. And, and that's really what we focus on over the long term. And that risk, there's two pieces of it that we focus on. One is their ability. This is more of what I would call objective view of their situation. This takes a look at what their needs are relative to the size of their portfolio and how much risk they're taking. Because the larger a percentage that an investor draws on a regular basis, the less ability that they generally have to go too, too far out into more speculative investments or or equities in general, because if the market goes down to any great extent, they're spending the money. So it's not there to recover from when we ultimately would expect the market to recover. And so the ability to take risk really dictates what our suggestion is for their asset allocation and their investment approach. And if you're taking a very small percentage out on a regular basis, which I would define as, you know, anywhere on 4%, generally it's not as much of a concern, but when you start to take six, seven, eight percent out, now you're really taking a risk if the market is really poor that you're able to recover from the recovery because now you're living on most of the assets. The second piece is whips to take risk, and this is more subjective. And what this is, is our understanding, speaking with a client on how they're going to react to when we have periods of volatility, like we're experiencing this year. Volatility happens. We know it happens. And it's easy to sit down and have a conversation about market history and what's happened. But when we actually go through it, the emotions start to kick in. And so one of our main roles is to make sure our clients, even if they want to take outside risks, are positioned appropriately and they're not taking too much risk, right? And so it's these two factors, ability to take risk and willingness to take risk that dictates how we propose portfolios for clients, how we manage their money, and, and critically, how we keep them invested. And the last thing we want is for a client to feel obligated to sell out if we have a, a volatile environment if it's not appropriate to do so. So one of our main objectives is, is to make sure we're positioning them appropriately to allow them to sleep at night and, and stay the course. So I'm jumping around a little bit here, Ashley, but I'm going to ask you to expand and maybe elaborate on the more speculative end of that risk spectrum that you just described. And I've noticed, particularly with younger investors I speak with, whether it's you know within some of the families we work with or even just you know on the street corner sometimes the the younger generation has more of an appetite for things like bitcoin and some of those tech innovation companies and sort of the next big thing in general and i think there's sometimes an attitude that they don't want to miss out and and they don't want to be boring in their investing with you know broad diversification and single digit returns over time so what would you say to people thinking that way Great question and, and happy to answer, Paul. What I will do is I'm going to ask you a question for, and I'd like you to answer it. What is the one thing that virtually all of the most prolific home run hitters in Major League Baseball have in common? Power. 
That is true, but the answer is they all strike out a lot, including <laughs> the late, great Mickey Mantle, who I would say Mickey Mantle was one, among the very best. I know he was one of my father's favorite baseball players. Mine too. But it, in baseball, unlike investing, this is okay because you come to bat four to five times a game. You have 160 games in a season. But you invest with the potential to strike out with a large portion of your wealth, it can be devastating to your longer-term goals. Mm. And regarding any investor, not just young investors, any investor's desire to shoot for the moon, I would say that it's generally okay to be a little opportunistic with a small portion of your investments with the understanding that the downside is very large. Or in the case of speculative investments, that you can lose your entire investment. I would caution about deploying too much into these arenas. Because I think this is an important point. I do want to make the distinction of equating interesting investment themes like cryptocurrency, like alternative energy, like innovation, with automatically being deemed good investments. And the reason I say that is I want to give an example. In the late 90s, the internet was the latest, greatest thing. And, you know, kind of the consensus was that it was going to change the way we do business, change the way we live. That consensus was absolutely spot on, absolutely right. If we look today, you know, obviously we're doing this podcast via Skype. We watch movies via the internet now, via streaming. We have our phones, which, you know, people are looking at continuously. So we buy things online regularly. So the world of the internet has changed everything that we do. That being said, if you go back to that time period, how many companies own a business? when that bubble burst, how many good companies were down 90% from 2000 to 2002? So the internet changed the world. I think, you know, looking and investing only in interesting themes is no substitute for fundamental research. And every investment has a point where it's either undervalued or overvalued. And investment themes can and have historically become significantly overvalued because they attract a lot of capital. So this is a long way of saying that investors should create a core investment plan that is well diversified, devoid speculation, and commit to saving on a regular basis. And it's generally better to hit singles and doubles, as we aim to do at Long River Wealth Management, than always trying to hit a home run, assuming the commensurate downside. I'm going to remember that line and use it often, particularly with one of my nieces. We can talk about that offline. So, Ashley, I'm going to get a bit personal now here and and ask you to talk about your own portfolio. We at Long River Wealth Management often say that we invest alongside our clients, which we do. But, you know, we also have our own goals and objectives and attitude towards risk. So as you invest your own family's assets towards your goals, just so that we have a real life example, can you take us through your thinking? Sure. And, and, you know, unfortunately, Paul, I'm going to be pretty boring on this one (laughs) by saying that I generally invest the same way that our clients do in terms of the actual investments, but also uh, those clients that have objectives of long-term capital appreciation and have a long time horizon. So I do avoid speculation of any type. I've never owned any cryptocurrencies, (laughs) non-fungible tokens. I wouldn't touch for the 10 foot pole. (laughs) And I believe that a a well-diversified equity portfolio is the best longer term vehicle for generating returns that outpace inflation. I do have some modest 
opportunistic type of investments, but I understand the inherent risk in those, and I will not mention what they are, but they're a piece of the portfolio and they play a role, but but not the core role in what we're doing. So, you know, for our clients on this line, I could definitively say that I invest very similar to them. And, you know, a lot of these changes we're discussing, I'm doing for myself. Well, I assume that would be your answer, but I, I was interested to hear you describe it. So thank you for that. So Ashley, sure. we're just about out of time. So let me just ask you to wrap things up with any final thoughts on, on our conversation or anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Sure. And this gets into kind of how we look at the future. But I would say as investors, we need to be prepared that tomorrow's best opportunities may not be the best investments from the past few years or even the last decade. And in some cases, this means holding or increasing exposures to areas that have underperformed, and in some cases, significantly. I'll use a re- recent example. Probably the most hated for the last 10 years up until last year was energy. And, you know, we've added a little bit into that space. And, you know, we understand the hair that surrounds, you know, the fossil fuel world and stuff of that nature. But we are optimistic that these companies are going to take steps in the right direction there. But from the investment side, you know, they fit our criteria, which meant, you know, the sentiment was very low, the valuations were low, and fundamentals had started out poor, but were improving. And so this is an example of an area that, you know, we'd be may possibly looking to add more over time, provided that, you know, we're comfortable with what the companies are doing themselves with respect to, you know, all the items that I just mentioned. And I'll give this one aside, by the way. I do remember distinctly having conversations with a few clients dating back to 2006, and they were absolutely convinced that the United States has lost its way and that China and the emerging markets were going to be the best investment themes moving forward due to better demographics and high growth prospects. Mm-hmm. And while there may have been better growth there, which I believe there was, since that point, the U.S. market has handily beaten the performance of broad emerging markets, in large part to more reasonable valuations at the time, and fundamentals that were not great, but they were improving. And in investing, what matters the most whether in fundamentals are improving or getting worse, it is not the absolute starting point. And so we do need to be nimble and focused on where the puck is going and not where it has been. And, and this kind of drives our longer term approach to how we construct portfolios. Well, I think that is a great note on which to end, Ashley. And I'd like to thank you for uh, just sharing your, your thinking on this call. We covered a lot of ground and sort of jumped around a bit. And I thought you left us with some great takeaways. So thank you very much. And I suspect I'll talk to you later today. 